0: Catherine Knight was born in Tenterfield, New South Wales, Australia, on October 24, 1955. Her mother, Barbara, was married to a man named Jack Ruffin. The couple had four sons together. They lived in the town of Aberdeen. Barbara had an affair with one of Jack's friends and co-workers named Ken Knight. The community frowned upon this extramarital relationship, so Barbara and Ken moved to another town. Barbara's four sons did not go with her. Two lived with Jack, and two lived with an aunt. Barbara and Ken would end up having four children, including Catherine Knight. Jack died in 1959, and the two sons who lived with him moved in with Barbara and Ken. Life in this household was not pleasant. Barbara frequently violated boundaries, sharing information about her sex life with Catherine and her other children. Barbara hated both men and sex. This attitude may be explained by Ken's behavior. He was aggressive and used to frequently subject Barbara to assaults of sexual nature up to 10 times a day. Catherine was the victim of the same crime perpetrated by other men, but not by her father. This went on until Catherine was 11 years old. The family moved back to Aberdeen and Catherine started high school. She was described as a bully. On one occasion, she attacked a teacher using a weapon During a separate incident, she attacked a male classmate. When Catherine was not attacking people, she was described as a model student. She left school when she was 15 years old, but was still unable to read or write. It's not common to hear about a school referred to a student as a model student when they can't read or write by age 15, but they may have just been referring to her behavior and not her academic performance. Catherine found work in a clothing factory About a year later, she found a job at a slaughterhouse. She described this as her dream job. Her employer gave her a set of butcher's knives, which she kept over her bed. I guess in case she was attacked by a cow in her sleep. Sleep attack cows are surprisingly stealthy. In 1973, Catherine started dating a man with an alcohol consumption problem named David Kellett. They would get married in 1974. Catherine's mother offered David some advice about his marriage to Catherine. Among other things, she told him that he had better watch out for her because she would kill him. She said that Catherine had a screw loose somewhere. It didn't take long for her advice to make sense to David. On the night of their wedding, Catherine attempted to strangle him, saying that he fell asleep after they only had sex three times. Evidently, that was an insufficient quantity of sexual encounters. On one occasion, after David arrived home, later than expected from a darts competition, Catherine struck him in the head with a frying pan after burning all his clothes and shoes. As it turns out, David's skull was fractured. The police were ready to charge Catherine, but she talked David into letting it go. On another occasion, Catherine put a knife to David's throat and accused him of cheating on her. The couple had a daughter in 1976. Not long after this, David moved to Queensland to be with another woman. Catherine was admitted to the hospital the next day because she was observed pushing her baby down the street in a stroller, repeatedly slamming the stroller into fences. She was diagnosed with postnatal depression. Shortly after being released from the hospital, Catherine placed her daughter on railway tracks right before the train was due. A man found the baby and removed her from the tracks just in time. After Catherine left the baby on the tracks, she stole an axe and threatened to kill several people. She was arrested and taken to the hospital. She signed herself out the next day. Within a few days, Catherine attacked a woman with a knife, slashing her across the face and demanding that the woman drive her to Queensland so she could confront David. They pulled into a service station where the woman ran away from the car. When the police arrived, they found Catherine using her knife to hold a boy hostage. The police were able to get the knife away from her using brooms, and once again, she was taken to the hospital. I wonder if these were ordinary brooms or special tactical police brooms. At the hospital, Catherine explained to the nurses that she was going to kill the mechanic at the service station because he had fixed David's car, which enabled David to drive to Queensland. She also told them that when she arrived in Queensland, she was going to kill both David and his mother. The police told David about this disturbing revelation. His reaction was to move back to Aberdeen along with his mother to be with Catherine. On August 9, 1976, Catherine was released from the hospital. David, his mother, and Catherine moved to another town. Catherine had another daughter in March of 1980. In 1984, Catherine left David, eventually ending up in Aberdeen. In 1986, Catherine met a man named David Saunders moved in with her and her daughters a few months later. On one occasion, Catherine thought that he came home too late, so she killed his two-month-old dingo puppy with a knife. In June 1988, Catherine gave birth to her third daughter. Not long after this, she hit David Saunders in the face with an iron and then stabbed him in the stomach with a pair of scissors. David Saunders survived and went into hiding, which was a good idea because Catherine was trying to find him, Catherine falsely filed the equivalent of a restraining order against him. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Catherine would get pregnant again in 1990. This time by a former coworker named John Chillingworth. They were together for three years. John said that he was never afraid of Catherine, although he noted that she had a wicked temper. Catherine ended the relationship in late December 1993 she was already having an affair with a man named John Price, who was fully aware of Catherine's reputation. Even still, he allowed her to move into his house, where he was raising his two children. The couple got into an argument in 1998 because John would not marry Catherine. To get back at him, she made a video recording of an expired medical kit that John had taken from the trash at his employer. His boss fired him, falsely believing that John had stolen the kit. Subsequently, John kicked Catherine out of his house. Within a few months, John was back with Catherine. The violent physical confrontations continued. One of those confrontations in February of 2000 involved Catherine stabbing John in the chest. John forced Catherine to leave his house and on February 29 filed for a restraining order. That same day, he told his co-workers that if he was missing from work the next day, It meant that Catherine had murdered him. John went back to his house. Catherine wasn't there, and she had sent his children to sleep at a friend's house. John left to spend some time with neighbors, returning at around 11 p.m. Catherine came to John's house sometime after this. She woke John up, and they had sex. Not long after this, so either late on February 29 or early on March 1, Catherine stabbed him. He tried to get away, but she kept stabbing him, 37 times in total. She skinned his body, decapitated him, cooked parts of his body, and prepared settings at the dinner table. John's head was in a pot on the stove, along with some vegetables. It was Catherine's intention to serve the body parts to his children. I know some people are very rigid about allowing substitutions and recipes. It looks like Catherine might be a little more liberal in this area. Catherine went into Aberdeen to an ATM and withdrew $1,000 from John's bank account. The next morning at 6 a.m., a neighbor noticed that John's car was still in the driveway. His employer sent workers over to see what was going on. They called the police after finding blood on the front door. The police found John's body. They also found a Catherine who had overdosed on prescription medications but was still alive. Catherine was taken to the hospital and eventually charged with murder She pleaded not guilty, then offered to plead guilty to manslaughter. That offer was rejected. Her trial started in October 2001, but before the jury could be squared away, Catherine changed her plea to guilty. Mental health experts believe that Catherine had borderline personality disorder and PTSD. They said she suffered from dissociation and didn't remember what happened. Catherine had no remorse despite her guilty plea. She was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. This was the first time this sentence was given to a woman in the history of Australia. In 2006, Catherine filed an appeal saying the penalty was too severe. Her appeal was rejected. Apparently, she still holds out hope that her sentence will be reduced someday. Now moving to my analysis. Here are a few items that stood out to me in this case. Item number one. Catherine Knight had engaged in a long series of severely criminal behaviors prior to the murder of John Price. She had conducted attacks that could have led to someone's death. So even though the activities after the murder are unusual and surprising, the homicide itself really seems to fit with her prior behavior. Item number two, Catherine had a fascination with death and the macabre. This may have been why her dream job was working in a slaughterhouse. When the police searched Catherine's residence after John's murder, they found a large collection of violent and bizarre movies, as well as a number of taxidermy mounts, like animals, that had been stuffed. Item number three, Catherine appeared to be strongly affected by the idealization devaluation cycle of borderline personality disorder. This is also called the love-hate cycle. She responded to fears of rejection with extreme devaluation. One could argue that the ultimate devaluation in the case of Catherine was to murder Anne Cook, her partner. Item number four, Catherine claimed that she lost her memory, but it seems fairly clear that she did not. The murder was probably planned. She told people she was going to kill John, and she took his money after the murder. She appeared to be operating with a clear purpose and future orientation. Catherine probably claimed to have amnesia, because she was in no mood to discuss the events, or because she was ashamed of her cooking ability. Item number five. One of the most puzzling elements of this case is how Catherine was able to attract a number of romantic partners, even though they knew she was dangerous. Several men took their chances. John Price paid the ultimate price, but all of them were in peril. I think there are two main reasons why the men stayed with Catherine and resumed the relationship after breakups. One appeared to be her willingness to have sex. This was probably a powerful motivator. The second reason is a lack of any critical thinking skills on the part of her lovers. For some reason, these men did not seem to appreciate the concept of a deal-breaker. There was no one negative experience that could outweigh the positive aspects of the relationship, however inconsequential and meager those positive aspects were. For most men, being stabbed in the chest, having one skull, fractured with a frying pan, and being strangled would definitely compel them to rethink the value of the relationship. John Price, in particular, did not seem to listen to his own words. He told people that Catherine was going to kill him, yet he still spent time with her. At some level, he must have appreciated the risk, but for some reason, he just needed to be with her. It was like he never had a feeling that something was eating away at him, at least not when he was alive. He was unwilling to preserve his life by setting boundaries that could have made him a winner. This enabled Catherine to end his life and serve him for dinner. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.